Kick. Ready. Present. Fire. Hi. Welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is behind the scenes where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. Today, we're on location at Colonial Williamsburg's magazine, a building where the colony stored its weapons. On a street of distinctively square colonial houses, the magazine stands out as an octagonal brick structure. Here with me is Chris Geist, who spends a lot of time here. He's a historic interpreter with the military program staff. And just to get the audience in on it, describe the room. Circular, kind of. Well, it's kind of circular. There are, there are eight sides to the building. We don't really know why that is. Nobody wrote it down. Governor Spotswood had it put up in 1715 as a strong brick storehouse to contain not only weapons, but the gunpowder and everything mm -hmm. else a soldier would need except for uh, food and medicine. Mm -hmm. Those things would spoil in this climate. Now, you told me earlier, so I know this, all the weapons on that wall behind the uh, uh, glass partition, so you can see through it, are authentic. That's right. The drums are authentic as well. So, so everything on that wall is real, and everything on this wall is a reproduction. Exactly. The things that we use to demonstrate military life mm -hmm. give you some, uh, some idea of what things were stored here. What things are stored here? Well, we got everything. We've got drums and fifes and swords and tents and uniforms and flags and buckets and eating utensils and canteens. Everything a soldier will need to go into the campaign. How many, uh, maybe you know, maybe you don't know. We're now back in the 18th century. This is an active magazine. It's working. How many people could you outfit out of here? Well, the answer is as many as you need. Um, <laughs> the first time that the thing is used is in um, 1719, and we just had a few dozen soldiers um, outfitted to go after Blackbeard the pirate. Mm -hmm. During the French and Indian War, we know of one day um, when at least 3,500 muskets were on this floor. It's a oh. fairly boring building when there's not a war going on because it's, it's just a warehouse. Uh -huh. In time of war, it's a bustling place with things coming and going all the time. This room, to me, does not look big enough to store 3,500 muskets. Well, I assure you it is. It is. And um, uh, above stairs, we have another room just this size. Um, and down below stairs, behind the building, there's a room just for the gunpowder. Mm -hmm. And the most we know of at uh, any one time was 34 tons. And no, it did not go off. I, I was asked that earlier in the summer by a visitor. And, um, well, the had, building is still standing. Well, most of Williamsburg would have been lost you know, if it had gone off. That's a lot of gunpowder. But think about this as, as not a place where people moved around. It's simply storage from floor to ceiling. So you came in, you got what you needed, you left. No, you stayed outside. And the keeper of the magazine, um, in a very orderly fashion, taking down the, the serial numbers of the weapons and such, would issue them to the soldiers who are brought here only in time of war. Okay. We do have militia who serve, um, use their own guns, they have their own powder, their own shot. Um, but in time of war, we need a more professional force armed with the same English muskets. Mm -hmm. So during the Revolutionary War, the foot soldier, the ordinary foot soldier, both sides were armed with the same gun. Pretty much, pretty much. Uh, just a basic English musket. We were, after all, English at the beginning of the war. It's a, it's a sort of a civil war in that sense. We are trained by British officers. Our officers, if they read military tacticians, they read English tacticians. And so we're pretty much 
the same. We do have militiamen, um, and we have frontiersmen, we have riflemen, but um, the bulk of the fighting was carried on by regular forces. Um, which, which brings up, you have written an article for Colonial Williamsburg. It basically argues that we have a false concept of the Revolutionary War, yes. that we think the British wore red jackets and marched in lines, and, and we got to shoot from behind walls and out of trees. And, there were a couple battles like that, to be, to be sure, but, but the bulk of the fighting, particularly um, um, in the north and um, even some of the southern campaigns, were European in style, both sides fighting in lines. And, and it, by the way, some American troops wore red, and it's not often known. Um, well, but, that, that uh, was a dangerous undertaking. But uh, the only way these weapons are effective is by massing fire. And also, the only way that you can do that is to have kind of an open ground situation where the officers can take control, can command the troops, and get them into order, shoulder to shoulder, three ranks, firing volleys every 15 seconds at the enemy, with bayonets fixed, ready to go the last yards uh, to, to drive the enemy from the field. So you can load and fire in 15 seconds? That's the goal. That's the goal. Okay, now... What could most people really do? Um, at that time period, if you were a professional soldier, again, these are not militiamen. They're not going to go home every evening. They're going to stay in the field with the uh, commanders, and they drill, and they drill, and they drill. That's one of the things that happens at uh, Valley Forge. Over that winter, in addition to all the suffering, uh, uh, the troops were drilled by General von Steuben, Baron von Steuben, and um, they learned to fire with this discipline and this speed. Now, if you're talking about a militia company in which everyone brings their own private weapon, many of them carrying fouling pieces, we would call them shotguns today, some carrying rifles, some others carrying rifles of a completely different caliber, those men could not load and fire volleys with any rapidity whatsoever. All of those weapons take different time frames to load, different motions. So in time of war, you do need that regular force. You need that force that is all armed with the same type of weapon. Here's a question you've been asked by probably 700 guests and are tired of, but how does a musket work? A musket works very simply. We, 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 um, unlike a rifle, there's no powder horn. We have pre-measured cartridges, which are simply tubes of paper, um, rolled and then dipped in wax on the bottom. The ball for the musket is put into there, and then the powder for the charge is on top of that. So if, if, you, if you go to load the musket, you simply bring it to half-cock position, retrieve one of those cartridges from your cartridge box on your right hip, bite the top of it off, pour a bit of powder into the pan to uh, um, form the, uh, the prime. Mm -hmm. You shut the pan, flip the musket around with your left hand, and throw the cartridge paper and all down the barrel. Now the ball is on the top. Uh, the ball is smaller than the, than the barrel. doesn't make sense that we're not hunting. We're just doing for speed, you know. So um, then you push it down with the rammer, and all you need to do is go to full cock, and you're ready to fire. Now you put some prime in, in the pan. Right. Is that where flash in the pan comes from? No, flash in the pan is when you fire the musket and uh, for some reason probably the vent is uh, to the inside of the barrel is plugged. You get the, the nice flash of the primer, but the musket does not go off. Oh, so, so that's a misfire. It's a misfire. Okay, that makes it begins to make a certain amount of sense now. 
Because the flash in the pan is, in fact, a misfire. It doesn't misfire. go very far. No. no. So now, then you would, you would clean out the vent, reprime it, and hope the next time it goes off. In the heat of battle, it was frequently found that men uh, would not notice when their musket had misfired. And you can imagine the nervousness you might feel when another opposing army is firing volleys back at you. Yeah. That, and that they would sometime reload and reload and reload. And if it finally goes off with four or five charges in it, it will uh, explode the barrel. Potentially not only hurting you, but remember you're, you're standing shoulder to shoulder, so we're going to take out a lot of your own troops with that one musket blowing up. Yeah. I remember there was a study after the Korean War, and some phenomenal percentage of frontline troops never fired. Exactly. I mean, it, it's, I think it's common in many wars. I know that to be the case in some battles of the Civil War. You're trying to out of the way of the, yeah. the, the incoming volleys. At the Battle of Camden um, in South Carolina, um, in August of 1780, the militia, most of them, ran from the field on the bayonet charge of the British and left their muskets loaded on the ground, never firing. I don't know. I'll ask it and see if you know. The British Army was said to be among the best standing armies in the world. Did they fight that well in America? Absolutely. Um, if you, you go battle by battle, um, they won most of the battles. We just happened to have the good fortune to win at the right time. And uh, they made some blunders along the way, of course. One of them was Cornwallis uh, uh, perhaps being, being caught here at Yorktown. Mm -hmm. okay. At the time of his surrender, the British still have substantial forces in the south and up in, 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 in New York and, and uh, could easily have carried on the war. I think it was a lot of uh, uh, public opinion uh, against the war and parliamentary uh, lack of resolve that, that caused them to give up. I have read somewhere the, the British uh, Foreign Office record of the Revolutionary War, and it seems that somebody who meant something, someone in authority, complained about the, the war in the colonies almost every day. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's a long-standing debate in, in, in Congress, or I mean, sorry, in the, in the Parliament, um, and in the public press. I mean, it reminded me, in, in looking into it, somewhat of our own um, uh, turmoil at the time of Vietnam. Uh, I read somewhere, too, which I, I had never thought of, but it makes sense. If you go back in the history of, of the war, when Cornwallis sent a note or a letter or a whatever to Washington saying he'd like to have a ceasefire and sue for peace, it was the first time anybody had surrendered to George Washington. I, I, I believe that to be the case. In fact, he was, um, particularly in the French and Indian War, the one who did the surrendering. I, I think that's wonderful. Somebody observed that he was an absolute genius at explaining why he lost. Right, exactly, exactly. And it went on for good. Uh, on the other hand, he did some things that, that, were, that were quite brilliant. The Christmas Eve attack in New Jersey across the Delaware quite River. Quite a surprise, yes. I mean, that brilliant. just probably one of the better guerrilla tactics you have ever read about, and it worked. It worked in, in part because it was so surprising. At that time, in the 18th century, um, armies just sort of stopped fighting, stopped doing anything, maneuvering, moving during the winter. And for good reason. It was very difficult to move uh, the heavy equipment and, and arms, let alone men, um, over frozen or muddied or snowy roads. So they just went into winter camps and totally unexpected attack at Trenton.
That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Read Chris Guy's story on 18th century military tactics in the winter 2008 Colonial Williamsburg Journal. Until then, check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.